fiery sky is now threatening to strike a mortal blow at the heart of the Midwest Far Belt. Thousands of acres of vital grain have already shriveled under the intense heat, giving rise to fears of famine if the flaming belt continues to rage unchecked. In Italy, all roads leading to Rome and the Vatican have been jammed for two days. From all over Europe, the faithful have been streaming toward St. Peter's to pray for deliverance from the catastrophe which has struck the earth. Here now, our television satellite camera in outer space showing the frightening ring of fire encircling the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our broadcast for today. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Jedi's strength flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 655 for Sunday, October 22nd, 2017. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is an underwater adventure. It's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Before I get into this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then we'll get into the movie. the entire sky catches on fire, the burning Van Allen belt threatening to destroy the universe. You are there in a deadly rain of disintegrating icebergs. Not even the soaring imagination of a Jules Verne could have dreamed of such a fantastic adventure in an atom-powered submarine that defies description. You've seen the brain of the sub? 
In here is the heart, the atomic motor room. There is more destructive force in this room than in all the explosives used in World War II. With a cast as exciting as the wonders they encountered. Walter Pidgeon. We hope to see sights never before seen by man. Joan Fontaine. I say, the belt will burn itself out. At 173 degrees, it will burn itself out. Barbara Eden. <laughs> Peter Lorre. Sounds like Suko. Nothing is impossible. Robert Sterling. If I'm to meet your deadline of the Marianas, I need fighters, not fatalists. Michael and Sarah. And Frankie Avalon. With due respect, sir, I think your judgment's been a little rocky lately. Why, you gold-bricking pipsqueak. You are there when the United Nations is thrown into a turmoil. The burning belt must be exploded clear of the Earth's magnetic field. And we have exactly 16 days and three hours in which to do it. Explode the belt and you explode the world! You are there when the frogmen battle a mammoth squid. You are there when Barbara Eden dances to Frankie Avalon's hot rhythms. You are there in outer space to see the Earth encircled in fire. You are there when the mini-sub threads a life and death course through the minefields. You are there when the giant of the sea attacks. You are there in the most startling underwater pursuit ever filled. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea is an American science fiction movie directed and produced by Irwin Allen. The screenplay was written by Irwin Allen and Charles Bennett. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was released July 12, 1961 and has a running time of 105 minutes. And here's the cast, starting at the top. Walter Pidgeon as Admiral Harriman Nelson. Joan Fontaine was Dr. Susan Hiller. Barbara Eden was Lieutenant J.G. Kathy Connors. Peter Lorre as Commodore Lucius Emery. Robert Sterling as Captain Lee Crane. Michael Ansara as Miguel Alvarez. And Frankie Avalon as Lieutenant J.G. Danny Romano. And that's all I have for movie information. Now let's get into the movie. Today's movie starts with the new and state-of-the-art nuclear submarine Seaview on its diving trials in the Arctic Ocean. The Seaview was designed and built by scientist and engineering genius, Admiral Harriman Nelson. Captain Lee Crane is the Seaview's commanding officer. Today's top of the news comes from the top of the world. The unpredictable Admiral Harriman Nelson has done it again. His brainchild, a fantastic atomic submarine with an amazing glass nose, is now undergoing final test below the ice at the North Pole. To sit in judgment on the final test, the Bureau of Marine Exploration has sent a seaplane with its top officer, the former Vice Admiral B.J. Crawford, to rendezvous with the submarine Seaview in the Arctic. Flying with them is the congressional watchdog of the budget, penny-pinching Congressman Llewellyn Parker, who had fought a losing fight against what he had termed Nelson's folly. And so the question of the day comes to this. Will the final test on the USOS Seaview 
turn it into Nelson's folly, or will it be another triumph of a great man, a great inventor, who, despite his oddball reputation, may yet emerge as the predominant scientific genius of our time. So, bon voyage, Admiral Nelson. Good luck, Seaview. The Seaview has picked up three observers, Vice Admiral B.J. Crawford, Dr. Susan Hiller, and Congressman Llewellyn Parker. Admiral Nelson and Captain Crane greet their guests and give them the grand tour of the Seaview before their final diving trial. Beautiful, isn't it? It's the most exotic thing I've ever seen. No more, thank you. Admiral, nice to see you, sir. Captain Crane, Dr. Hiller, Dr. Hiller, Congressman Park. How do you do, sir? You have an expensive toy here, Admiral. Although it is uh, suitable for uh, sightseeing. Quite right, sir. We hope to see sights never before seen by man, and by seeing, solve some of the mysteries of the deep. Sorry for the brief hello when you came aboard, but this uh, toy of mine is a demanding lady. Aren't we all? <laughs> Washington probably thought you needed a woman's touch around here. <laughs> Research project, isn't it? That's right. The reaction of crewmen under conditions of lengthy confinement? Yes, Admiral, and I appreciate the honor of being the only woman aboard. Ah, but you're not. We have another one. Oh. You'll meet her. Uh, shall we see the rest of the ship? Well, I did think that was the purpose of our visit. Doctor? Congressman? The Seaview begins its final diving trial. The Seaview is to travel underneath the Arctic ice cap and will be out of radio contact for 96 hours. The Seaview has to surface when boulder-sized pieces of ice begin to hit the submarine. After surfacing, they discover the sky is on fire. Bergen, we've just seen it. What is it? We've been calling you for almost three days. What's that fire in the sky? It's the Van Allen belt of radiation, the 300-mile level. It caught fire about 50 hours ago. Nobody knows how, but a South African observatory reported heavy meteor activity at about the same time it exploded. Theoretically, it's possible. What's the forecast? We just don't know. The UN has called an emergency scientific conference. It's working around the clock. The world's top brains are there. Pitar, Zuko, Charbier, and the president wants you there on the double. Can you send a plane for me? Impossible. Thermal conditions have grounded all aircraft. There's nothing flying anywhere in the world. The temperature has reached 135 degrees, and there's no way of knowing how much hotter it will get. Dewline headquarters just below the pole reports the polar ice caps are melting. Okay, Bergen, we're on our way. Be there in two days. Godspeed. Out. Before heading for New York, Captain Crane spots a survivor on the ice pack and sends a rescue party to pick him up. The survivor's name is Miguel Alvarez, and he is a civilian scientist. Admiral Nelson and his friend Commodore Emery calculate a plan to end the catastrophe. The Seaview arrives in New York Harbor two days later. At the meeting, Admiral Nelson informs the U.N. that according to his calculations, if the heat increase is not stopped, it will become irreversible, and the Earth has a life expectancy of about three weeks. Distinguished scientists, ladies and gentlemen, this planet is impaled on a roasting spit, slowly but inexorably being seared and blistered by the fire in the sky. If the Van Allen belt continues to burn, the world will burn with it. And no one can doubt that civilization, as we know it, will disintegrate if the temperature should rise to 175 degrees. Now, in the last five days, the recorded temperature rise has been two degrees every 24 hours. If that rate is maintained, our planet has a life expectancy of about three weeks. <laughs> 
therefore, therefore, if we are to avoid cremation, we must act at once. Lucius, let me have those charts of ours in the maps, will you please? Thank you. Now, if I may make a comparison, when a diseased appendage threatens the life of a human body, a doctor has no choice but to amputate. We have no choice either. We must amputate the belt or die. Amputate? How? Not with a knife, doctor, but with a shot in the heart. The burning belt must be exploded clear of the Earth's magnetic field. And we have exactly 16 days and three hours in which to do it. How do you arrive at that particular timing? How? The Admiral and I have worked out the mathematical formula. And believe me, our figures are correct. Oh, he irritates me. The shot must take place on August the 29th at exactly 4 p.m. The location of this operation is as vital as the time. A place uh, 205 miles north northwest of Guam in the Marianas Islands. To be exact, where are those figures, Lucius? Ah. To be exact, latitude 15 degrees north, longitude 145 degrees east. The location and the time are dictated by the Earth's rotation and the consequent trajectory of firing. Firing of what, Admiral? An atomic missile, Doctor, fired from the submarine sea view. The missile will arc along the burning belt. As it detonates, it will seed the flames with an overdose of radiation, causing the belt to explode outward into space. Uh, to simplify it, take a toy balloon. A little too much air, and poof, no balloon. A little too much radiation, and poof, no world. Perdio! Insanity! Insanity! This lunatic scheme will destroy us all! Gentlemen, care to look at our figures? Yes. The Admiral's scheme is suicidal insanity. You should know that, Commodore. Explode the belt and you explode the world. Not if the blast is directed away from us. No, no, no. I am diametrically opposed. I know the chemical composition of the gases within the belt and the rate of consumption by fire. My calculations cannot be wrong. I say the belt will burn itself out. At 173 degrees, it will burn itself out. Fine. What if it doesn't burn itself out? You have your plan. I have mine. Time will judge if one is right. Doctor, our plan can't wait. You say the belt will burn out at 173 degrees. At the present rate of climb, that's August the 30th. We say it won't burn up, but we can't wait to test our theory because we must fire the missile on August the 29th. Otherwise, we lose our angle of trajectory. Then this scientific body must decide which one of us is right. I'm not going to wait and watch the world burn to a crisp. I have 16 days to get to the Marianas, and I shall need every ounce of speed and every precious moment of time. Would the chair allow the captain stand by to get underway? I demand the admiral scheme be referred to committee. I say it, I demand the admiral scheme be referred to committee. There's no time. Then I call a vote. All those in favor of the admiral scheme. All those against. No! Not mine, yours. My answer shall come only from the president of the United States. It's a race against time as the sea view speeds to reach the proper firing position above the trench in the Marianas in the Pacific. During this time, Admiral Nelson and Captain Crane agree on tapping the Rio to London telephone cable to try to eventually reach the president. During the telephone cable attempt, Captain Crane and Alvarez battle a giant squid. Although the London connection is made, 
Nelson is told that there's been no contact with the United States for 35 hours. Alvarez had become a religious zealot and tries to create dissension amongst the crew. There may be some here whose friends and loved ones have already gone to meet their maker. If it is God's will that they and we shall die, so be it. A joyous reunion can be only a brief moment away. That's enough, Mr. Alvarez. That's more than enough. What kind of talk is this anyway? I only came to offer comfort. Comfort? You offer defeatism. May I remind you this is a federal ship and these are federal seamen. By what right do you dare preach of imminent death, of meek resignation to the inevitable? Captain, I... Nothing is inevitable except defeat for those that give up without a fight. I remind you to keep your sniveling philosophies to yourself. Now get forward and stay away from my men. As you wish, Captain. Carry on. Admiral Nelson was unable to reach the president and decides to go ahead with his plan. Now hear this. Men, this is a time for decision. You heard the tragic news over the cable. Contact with Washington is now impossible. This means we can't get presidential approval of my plan. Therefore, the final decision must be made now. There are only two choices. So, with higher directives unavailable and by the authority vested in me, I have made that final decision. We are headed for the Marianas to fire the missile. Now it's a race against time. A countdown of only 14 days in which to cross half the world. If we are to win that race, and we must, sacrifices will become daily obligations. The new work schedule will be posted immediately. And I tell you now, it's a rough one. Just one thing more. Our world faces its darkest hour. But I am convinced that, with God's help, my plan will succeed. And the world will survive. The Seaview's generator breaks down, causing the Seaview to continue their voyage without radar or sonar. This causes the Seaview to enter a minefield where two crew members are killed. All stop! All stop! Take over. Yes, On the searchlight casing, sir. All back, dead slow. All back, dead slow. from the outside. Frogmen. No, we're too deep. Use the mini-sub and a torch. Burn through the cable. Mini-sub and all these mines? Can you think of a better idea, Captain? I quit a couple of hours ago when I suggested we wait for repairs. You made your point. The responsibility is now mine. Aye, aye, sir. Harry, take it easy. This is the captain. 
We're in the middle of a minefield. Cable is caught on a forward searchlight. I need two volunteers for the mini-sub. Gleason, sir. I'll go. Right, Gleason. Okay, Red. Here's your chance for that joyride. Smith, sir. Count on me. Right, Smith. Hey, that's young Jimmy. Now, look, this is a pretty touchy situation, so play it cool. Aye, aye, sir. Aye, aye, sir. Good luck. The Seaview is now free from the minefield and back on their way to the Marianas. It is later found out that one of the crew members sabotaged the generator. Hodges? He smashed in the medicine chest and swallowed these, Admiral. Must have typed that note on my machine. I was to blame for the death of Gleason and Smith. I sabotaged the generator. Although only God knows why I did this terrible thing. Sabotage? He wasn't responsible, Admiral. It was a severe nervous breakdown. That's beside the point, Doctor. All right, Captain. You blame me for the death of Leeson and Smith. But here is positive proof that those men were victims not of my impatience, but of deliberate sabotage. Any comments? Yes, sir. Sabotage might be just the beginning. You're driving my crew to the point of exhaustion, possibly even rebellion. These are men, not machines. If they break down or blow up, we'll never meet your deadline. We'll meet it because we have to meet it. I'm not worried that your men can't take it. They can. But I am concerned about your alternative, rebellion. I found this note in my cabin just a few minutes ago. If you continue your lunatic project, you'll never live to see it completed. Hodges will never see it completed. He won't bother you anymore. I'm not so sure that he did. These notes were not typed on the same machine. Double the security guard. All men off duty restricted to quarters. Until proved otherwise, everyone is suspect. There is a suspicious fire in the Admiral's quarter at the same time as a poisonous gas is coming out of the ship's ventilation system. The sea view is forced to the surface where they spot a derelict ship in the distance. A boarding crew searches the ship and find that everyone is dead. What'd you see out there? Dead men. Dead men on a dead ship. Ain't it about time we went home? Yeah. You've all got families, haven't you? Well, how about it? Hey, leave it to me. Yes, Lieutenant. It's a complete derelict, sir. Just four days out of Honolulu. Everyone's dead. The heat, no water. We found this in the bar. It's the Hawaiian Times, stated last Thursday. I've been asked to speak for some of the crew, sir. What is it, Kowski? We've been feeling this way for days, but, well, I guess that dead ship brought it to a head. Brought what to a head? Sir, the men feel if it's really the end coming, they ought to be spending their last hours with their wives and families. Now, we respectfully demand, sir, that you take us back home. I see. Well, may I remind all of you that this is a government ship. 
demands made by a crewman or an officer could be considered mutiny. Shall I so consider it? Well, speak up. Captain, as a civilian, may I say a word? The world may end at any minute now. Certainly at such a time, these men have a right to choose where to die and with whom. Listen, Mr. Alvarez. Just a minute, Captain. Mr. Alvarez makes a valid point. I do not believe the world is ending. If I did, I'd be heading for home myself. But in fairness to everyone, there is some recent news that may have a bearing on your decision. It comes from a Honolulu newspaper found on the derelict yacht. The headline reads, World subs ordered to stop Seaview from firing missile. So in addition to all our other problems, we are now a hunted ship and we may never get a chance to fire the missile. This in no way alters my plans. This ship will hold its course. But in view of this news and uh, your request, the men who want to go home may do so on that yacht. I think you're fools to try it, but I'll supply sufficient water and food to give you a good fighting chance. Admiral, if we're to meet your deadline to the Marianas, it's, it's madness to split this crew. In view of the threat of mutiny, we... Not mutiny yet, Captain. Your challenge was not taken up by the men. All our trouble stems from the fanatical desire on the part of some, not all of them, to go home. I'd rather have a small, loyal crew than risk further sabotage. Admiral. That's enough, Captain. Men, you have 15 minutes to make your decision. Please have any in the sick bay that want to go placed aboard the yacht. One of you doctors better go along, the other stay. Dr. Jameson, I would say that this looks like a job for you. Yes, sir. Get the supplies rolling, Captain. Captain Crane begins to question Admiral Nelson's sanity. Yes. Hi. Buy a cup of coffee? Look, Lee. Now, wait, I... wait just a minute. I appreciate your blind loyalty to the Admiral. I felt that way myself until his lunatic actions started to follow a pattern. Lunatic actions? All right, is this rational? No search for survivors in Ice Flow Delta. Crash died in New York with police on deck. Sent a mini-sub into a minefield which killed two of my men. Well, he had to take the Drove chance. a fine officer to sabotage and suicide. Produced a threatening note which he probably wrote himself. Then he dreamed up this so-called murder attempt which was actually his smoking in bed. I believe And he... now the final straw, he approves a desertion. When we desperately need every able-bodied man on this sub. Lord knows what he'll do next. Or what you'll do next, is that it? Procedure under which a subordinate officer may relieve a superior of his command. That's just in case. Of what? I decide the Admiral is irresponsible. Irresponsible? Well, then what are you going to do about the missile? It has to be fired. Why? If the Admiral's crazy, his plan is crazy, too. The U.N. thought so. They've got subs out looking for us right now. Well, Professor Emery believes in it. I'm sorry. But until I say so, the matter's closed. The Sea View reaches the Mariana Trench, only to be met by a hostile submarine. The hostile submarine fires torpedoes at the Sea View, but misses. The hostile submarine follows the Sea View deep into the Mariana Trench, but implodes before it can destroy the Sea View. Near the end of the movie, the saboteur is revealed to be Dr. Hiller. Captain Crane catches her as she exits the ship's nuclear reactor room. 
She's been exposed to a fatal dose of radiation. Her detector badge is deep red. Walking over the submarine shark tank, she falls in during a struggle with Captain Crane and is killed by a shark. Moments before the launch, Alvarez threatens to blow up the sea view to stop the missile launch. What's the temperature reading? 173.2 and the fire's still burning. I knew it. Zuko was wrong. There is no burnout point. Stand by to fire. Aye, aye, sir. Sail camera, prepare to track missile. Sail camera on. Missile room, stand by. Number eight, two. Missile room, standing by. Target position, ten minutes. This is the missile room. Hatch opening now. We made it, Alvarez. We'll fire that missile on time. I think not, Admiral. Alvarez. Oh, man, has a right to challenge God's will. Have you gone completely mad? Put down that bomb. Man has sown the seeds of sin. Now he will reap the whirlwind. Everybody stand still. Lieutenants, get away from the missile button. Don't move, Admiral. Hold it. Attention, everyone. This is Alvarez. I have a bomb. A bomb? If anybody tries to fire the missile, I'll blow up the ship. Captain Crane, wherever you are, see that no one interferes. Captain Crane puts on a wetsuit and goes outside the sea view. He arms and launches the missile from outside the submarine. The missile reaches the Van Allen belt, explodes, and the sky returns to normal. The last scene of the movie is of the sea view heading for home. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. The model and interior sets of the submarine cost producer Erwin Allen $400,000. So he was naturally keen to get some further use out of them. Since the film was a hit, he was able to persuade ABC TV to turn it into a series. There are a couple notable sound effects in this movie. The sound of the Martian war machines from the War of the Worlds was reused as one of the sound effects in the main control room of the Seaview. The sound effect from the missile launch would later be used as a sound effect for the Batmobile powering up. Del Monroe appeared in the original movie as Kowski, as well as the TV series as a character with a similar name, Kowalski. Barbara Eden and Michael Ansar were married to each other when this movie was made. The tail fins on the sea view were inspired by the 1961 Cadillac. And that's all I have for movie trivia. Now it's time for the Star Trek connection. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I try to find a Star Trek connection in every movie or TV show I watch. Michael Ansara is the Star Trek connection in today's movie. He played the Klingon cruiser commander Kang in three Star Trek episodes. The first time he played was in the original series. The episode was Day of the Dove. The second time he played that character was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the episode called Blood Oath. And the last time he played it was in the Star Trek episode, uh, Star Trek Voyager episode, Flashbacks. And that's all I have for the Star Trek connection. Here are my comments about today's movie. I watched the 2000 DVD release from 20th Century Fox. It came as a double feature with Fantastic Voyage. The picture and sound quality are pretty good. This movie only came with the theatrical trailer. That's it. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I was probably in the 7th or 8th grade. I used to watch the TV show as a kid, 
but I didn't realize there was a movie until I got into seventh or eighth grade. And when I watched the movie for the first time, it was kind of weird because I watched a TV show first and I got used to seeing Richard Basehart and David Hedison as Admiral Nelson and Captain Crane. And it was kind of weird, but I got used to it. Um, I really like this movie. This is a very entertaining adventure movie. I think the story was really good. I think the actors did a great job, except for Barbara Eden. She got on my last nerve. Every time Captain Crane would do something, you'd see her running down the hall. Oh, Lee, don't do it. Okay, I had enough of her. My opinion, she could have been written out of the movie and we would have never noticed her. I liked all, I loved all the sets. It really looked like the inside of a submarine. It was very cool. I liked the mini sub, but I missed the flying sub. I really liked the flying sub. Um, I saw a model of the uh, sea view at a model shop down the street from my house not too long ago. Um, one thing I noticed, they used a, they reused a lot of the footage from this movie in the series. I mean, a lot. All the scenes were the ship rocks and the, big, the, the guys in the galley lose their food and you see the sparks. That's all from this movie. This is a solid science fiction movie. I would recommend this to all science fiction fans. Um, on a scale from one to 10, I'm going to give this a solid seven. And those are my comments about voyage to the bottom of the sea. That's it for today's podcast. Before I end this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back on the podcast next week with a special Halloween vidcast. I'll end today's podcast with the main title theme to this movie. It was composed by Paul Sawtell and Bert Schefter and performed by Frankie Avalon. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care. This is M5 signing off. To the bottom of the sea In a sea of blue-green We will find love at the bottom of the sea Unbelievable, inconceivable, fantastic it will seem, but we'll be the first, the very first, to live such a strange new dream. To the bottom of the sea On our voyage To the bottom of the sea